Sometimes you don't care how much something costs. It doesn't even matter what your philosophy of spending money is or how many, how many resources you have. There are just some moments where you don't care how much something costs. This last week I drove Ali down to Santa Barbara and I knew that we had to go over the Siskiyous and through the snow belt of California down to Mount Shasta and I thought, We'll probably be fine. It'd probably be a good idea to buy some tire chains. So I did a little bit of research, as is my want, and I went to buy tire chains. And I've only used them once before, and it was an abject disaster. It was just, I don't know how people put tire chains on. So I found this one um, set from Les Schwab that were really, really easy. Um, watched the video, and I'm like, oh my gosh. I think I can get these on in a minute a piece, which is about what you want to do when you're knee deep in snow, right? So, but I go to Lesh Schwab and I, the lady shows me that they actually have two choices. There's the tire chains that are quick and easy, and then they have the cheap tire chains. And so all of a sudden I start thinking, wow, I could save 90 bucks by just buying the cheap ones because what are the chances I'm actually going to have to use them? And then I thought, I'm gonna spend a little bit more money because I want it to be easy. And then I thought, if Allie and I got stuck in the snow, even the 150 bucks I paid for chains, I wouldn't care. I'd pay 500 bucks, I'd pay a thousand bucks. I didn't care how much, I wouldn't care how much it cost so that we could get out of that situation and we could be safe. Sometimes, even if something is costly, you're willing to do it. And that kind of gets us into what we're going to be talking about today in our second sermon as we focus on what's important to us. So I'm going to read for us from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So we believe in making disciples, ideally disciples who make disciples. And that's what we're going to look at today being disciples and making disciples. So this, uh, this passage is out of the eighth chapter of Matthew, which means that there is seven that go before it and a whole lot that goes afterwards. So where are we contextually in the book of Matthew? Because that's important. So the beginning of Matthew, you get the birth narratives about Jesus. You get the start of Jesus's ministry. And then from chapter five through chapter seven, so three full chapters, you get the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus basically lays out the kingdom ethic. This is how the kingdom of God differs from other philosophies and other ethics. And then you have chapter eight. So immediately after this big teaching, Jesus goes out and he starts to do stuff, and mostly they're pretty showy miracles. Jesus in chapter eight, he heals a man who has leprosy. He heals the servant of a Roman centurion. He heals Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever and is stuck in bed. And then it goes a little bit more broader and just talks about how he restores lots of people who were demon-possessed to their right minds and healed all of the sick. So this is a pretty flashy ministry that's going on. So you get this great teaching and then you have all of this healing that goes on and it begins to attract people because 
People are attracted to things like that. And you could be cynical and say people just want to have their needs met, or you could say that people are attracted to what works. And for our purposes, let's go with the latter. People are attracted to what works, and it appears that Jesus works. He's changing people's lives. And so then we get this interaction with two people who are interested in Jesus, two people who are attracted by what he's done, by his teaching and the way that he's healing people. Now, God's no respecter of people, but we are. So the first dude in this pericope is somebody. He's a person of influence. He's a person of means. He's a scribe. He's the teacher of the law. And he says to Jesus, I will follow you. The better translation there is really, I want to follow you. And that's important because want to and will are two very different things. Like if you say to your friend, are you going to help me move? And they respond, I want to. You're just waiting for the but when he says, I want to, but I can't. It's very different than if you say, can you help me move? And he's like, I will. So there's a big deal there. I want to, and you're almost waiting for, but. And this is really what the crux of the issue is in the passage. I want to follow you wherever you go, but it's going to get uncomfortable. Jesus says, foxes have places to go, birds have places to go. I don't have any place to go. I don't know where I'm going to lay my head tonight. And note that it doesn't say what the dude's response is to that. Maybe we can assume he decided not to follow Jesus anymore because he liked to know where he was going to end up that night. I don't know. But it also could be because the question is floated out to us. Maybe it's a question we're supposed to answer. Following Jesus might get uncomfortable. Are you still in? So the second person, and we don't know who he is. He could be another scribe, or he could just be some regular dude. It is interesting that he's referred to as a disciple. So he's somebody who's engaged at some level or another, and he doesn't make a statement like, I'm going to follow you. He makes a request. And it's obviously in response to Jesus saying, follow me. And he makes a perfectly normal request, the request that we would expect any decent person to make. I need to bury my father. And Jesus responds with, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. And at first, that seems odd and awkward and really callous. I mean, come on, Jesus. The guy's dad is dead. He has some responsibilities to his family. But let's dig just a little bit deeper. First of all, we don't know if his father is dead. It's not really clear in the text. In fact, a lot of commentators believe that he's what, what he's saying is, before I follow you, I need to wait until my father dies because he's old and I need to take care of him. So it's not really clear if he's dead and he needs to do it now or this could drag on for a while. I remember when we were in Jamestown a long time ago, uh, we had a pretty active seniors uh, group and they took trips all over the place. And there was always this lady who refused to go because she had an elderly mother and if she left her mom for the overnight trip or whatever, she was afraid that her mother would die and she wouldn't be there. Well, her mother didn't die for six years. 
And this woman never actually got to do anything because she was so afraid that her mom might die. So this could be something that could have gone on for years and years. Now, Jesus is in no way saying, shirk your responsibilities. Because I know that Jesus wants me to have a healthy marriage. I know that Jesus wants me to raise my children in a healthy and godly way. I know that Jesus wants the best for me. I know that Jesus wants me to be a person of integrity and to do what I said I would do, not just flake on people. So something else is going on here. Jesus says, follow me. And this dude responds, first, let me. And we sort of get this. Because I think a lot of times we look and we go, man, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I need to make sure that my, my retirement is secure. Or I've got to get my kids through school first. Or it's a really busy time at work, Jesus. Or we've got this vacation planned. Or fill in the blank. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at. There's always going to be a reason. There's always going to be an excuse why you can't follow him, why something else is more important. We set up goals in our lives, who we want to be, what we want to accomplish by when, what lifestyle we want to have, and then we would really like to be able to fit Jesus in there too, because everybody likes Jesus. But here's what you have to understand about discipleship, about really following Jesus. He calls us to a new way of life, not to just fit him into what our plans and priorities currently are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this really great quote. It's a little long, but it's good. Bonhoeffer writes, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every person must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old self which is the result of an encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old self at his call. Bonhoeffer says the call to abandon the attachments of this world. So this is really about priorities. And we're afraid of what Jesus's priorities for us might be. We see Jesus as someone who's going to take stuff away from us, like the lifestyle we want to have. We have the sense that Jesus wants to make us do terrible things that we don't want to do, instead of believing that he wants the best for us. So if following Jesus is so costly, why would I do it? And the answer is because there are moments of clarity or crisis in our lives when we recognize that we need help or that our lives are not headed the right way. It might be when we've done some business deal that wasn't on the up and up and we realize we don't want to be that guy and we wonder how we ever got to this place that's so far away from who we wanted to be. It might be when you realize that the career that you've always dreamed of has a downside that you didn't anticipate, and you feel like you've wasted all this time and don't know what comes next. 
It could be when you get the cancer diagnosis or when you realize that you can't do anything more to help your kids and your heart is ripped out. And at that point, you would do whatever it takes to get out of that situation and find a new direction and find help. You don't care what the cost is. It's like with my snow chains. If you're in deep, you don't care how you get out. You just want to get out. And that's where the costly part comes in. Sometimes it's worth it. That's the moment where the most important thing come into focus. My favorite biblical example of this is in the, the Gospel of John, where Jesus is giving some pretty difficult teaching about what it means to be a follower of his. And as Jesus teaches, people just start peeling away. You know, they're like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And then you get the picture that Jesus looks up and realizes that there's just the 12 disciples that are there with him. And he says to them, don't you want to go too? And in John 6, 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Peter realizes that this is tough stuff that, that Jesus is talking about. But Peter has tried a lot of things in life and Jesus is the only thing that works. Peter's chased a lot of other things, and Jesus is the only one who has filled his soul with life. Peter sees clearly who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him, and he knows he's not gonna find that anywhere else. And so even if it's costly, where else would he go? So he commits to going forward, to still following. And the same is true for us. Jesus gives us life. Jesus gives us peace. The way that we were currently following doesn't lead us to those things. The only way we get those things is if we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because that's where we find life. That's where we find peace. That's where we find hope. That's where we find meaning. We find it nowhere else. And the closer we follow Jesus, the more we experience other things. And no matter how attractive all the other excuses we might have for not following Jesus are, they don't pay off in the end. And that's why it is a priority for us to develop disciples, true followers of Jesus, because we have found life in him. So if you realize that you aren't closely following Jesus, or you're just trying to fit him into your current construct, what do you do? Well, you do what Jesus asked the people who were there with him to do. You get to know him. I mean, he did life with people for three years. Some really closely and some were just around the fringes, but he was around them for three years. So how do you know what Jesus thinks? How do you know what Jesus would do? Look at the people who know him. So read the eyewitness accounts. Join a Bible study, find a mentor. Find out what Jesus was and did and said. And then follow the people who are following him. I mean, if you decided to take up woodworking or quilting or restoring or old cars or whatever, what would you do to learn about those things? You'd find a group that was doing those things. You'd find someone who was good at those things. You'd watch videos, you'd do research, you'd practice. You'd make it a priority. And that's the only way you'd become a woodworker or a quilter or a mechanic or whatever. You wouldn't just sit 
for an hour in the woods on every sixth Sunday and say, I'm a woodworker. It doesn't happen by accident. So my challenge to you is to really evaluate what your priorities are and what you're doing to grow as a disciple of Jesus. It's our second highest priority. Now we make disciples who ideally make other disciples. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's the best way I know to make other disciples. So think about this. If you were to invite someone to follow you, if someone were to walk around behind you and observe your life, what would they learn about integrity? What would they learn about anger? What would they learn about helping and caring for others? What would they learn about what the most important things in life are? And how would those reflect on Jesus? I was disappointed in church last week. I didn't come to our church. It just reminded me of how good we have things here. I went to another church and I had really, really high expectations for it. And I sat and the worship was great. I mean, it doesn't take much for me. I figure the onus is on me to participate, not on somebody else to make the experience happen. So engaged with worship and that was great. And then I listened to the sermon. And the sermon was a lot of catchphrases. And it was mostly just a lot about cultural assumptions about various topics. And I was sitting next to a very engaged person who may or may not have been my daughter, Allie, who kept passing me notes saying, what am I supposed to take from this? How is this supposed to affect me? How am I supposed to grow? What is this telling me about Jesus? And I realized that I got to the end of this thing and I had heard a lot of political stuff. I had heard a lot of things that I didn't necessarily not agree with, but I got to the end and realized that the thing that I hadn't heard throughout the whole sermon was the gospel. I hadn't heard about hope. I hadn't heard about God's love. I hadn't heard about the ability to, to be changed. I just heard platitudes and things that made people feel like what they already believed was the right things. We want to call people to the gospel. We want people to see who Jesus really is. We don't want to just say what's politically acceptable in the time. We don't want to enforce the cultural biases that we have. We don't want to just look uncritically at our lives and just make each other look and feel really good. We want to engage with the gospel because the gospel points us to Jesus and that's where the power is. It reminds me that we don't follow a system. We don't follow a philosophy. We follow a person because it's only in following him that we find real life. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, who or what are you actually following? Number two, if someone followed you around, would they be pushed toward or pulled away from Jesus? And number three, what is one step you can take this week to follow Jesus?